Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. If you like what we're doing at Voices of Reason, check out the Hinckley Report podcast from our friends at the Hinckley Institute of Politics at the University of Utah. It's entertaining, informative, and thought-provoking conversations from journalists and policymakers. Hello and welcome to Voices of Reason. I am Jason Lee along with Amy Donaldson. And today we're going to be talking about uh, diversity and inclusion. And joining us today uh, in the workplace, I should say, uh, Sarah Jones. She is the founder and CEO of Inclusion Pro, uh, an organization that helps executives build inclusion and diversity at their companies, as well as Olga Stoddard. She is an assistant professor uh, of economics at BYU, Brigham, Brigham Young University in Provo, and a senior research associate with Science and Diversity Initiative, a collaboration of researchers and practitioners in the field of diversity. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Professor Strider, I'm going to have you bring that down a little bit in front of your face so I can see you. I mean, I just, yeah, yeah. perfect. Okay, so um, we've been talking offline about a bunch of stuff, and I, I want to kind of at least give a, a baseline of, of, of kind of, uh, in particular, uh, Professor Strider, your your research into diversity and how it is uh how it impacts the bottom line in, uh, in in the business field. So can you explain kind of what you do? Sure. Um, so as part of my research, I look at um, gender and ethnic differences in the labor markets. Um, and uh, most recently, I have, as a, as a senior research fellow with the Science of Diversity Initiative, have been involved with testing different interventions uh, with various companies, Um, to try and improve diversity and inclusion in the workplace. Um, So my most recent research project looks at um, different ways that you can increase um, the diversity in the applicant pool uh, with a large financial firm in the U.S. Hmm. And that's Sarah, so it's funny she mentions this large applicant pool. You and I were talking uh, earlier this morning about how that's part of – what diversity and inclusion is to find a larger pool of applicants, though you can have some pushback from uh, at the executive level even because people then have this fear of losing their share of the pie. Yeah, I mean, that's the irony of the whole situation, right? I think, you know, I've been in, as CEO at a company. Um, I think executives, you know, like to think that they're data-driven. Mm-hmm. But when change happens within organizations, that becomes the challenge because you're dealing with an organization of potentially hundreds of people that aren't always going to understand the change. They don't always know why something's happening. Mm-hmm. And certainly um, there's lots of uh, 
efforts to train and try to educate people around diversity inclusion, but at the end of the day, you're actually, it really does impact their livelihood. And anytime something potentially, you know, rocks a boat to somebody's livelihood, it creates fear. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and I, I love data. I love measurements. I love, you know, and I think it's so important to to understand that. And of course, the data on profitability around diversity, gender, and and race and ethnicity at all levels of leadership um, leads to better profitability. They outperform. We've been saying that for decades, um, but there's still this, you know, mm-hmm. where it actually, where the rubber actually hits the road that we're still trying to work on. So I have a question about um, how you create that larger pool, because I, I have two thoughts on that. One of them is um, I don't know that the bait uh, traditionally white, uh, you know, firms are 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 throwing out for um, that diversity. Like I, I, I go back to what Michelle Obama was here uh, with Pluralsight and she spoke she addressed this issue and she said, you know, who's on your search committee what are you offering right what i'm looking for a job is not the same thing as what jason is looking for in a job and we find this over and over but i feel like sometimes the job description or the job what the way in which uh they're trying to increase the pool may not address may not be attractive right or it may not be um in the place where those people are looking and then the other aspect of it is um, I find that sometimes the job's descriptions or what they're asking for, I'm already excluded from that because I've been excluded from that in the place where I worked. And right. so how do you create a bigger pool and how, like, for, it, truly, and and if you want some different, you know, I, I even go back to, we hired uh, uh, Eric. Oh, um, would you? Woodyard from uh, grew up in Michigan. Michigan, Yeah. And was not currently working in NBAB. And among the debates about that was if you're not currently, there's all these applicants out there who have worked NBA beats. And this this is when the paper was looking for a new jazz writer two years ago. Yeah. And and we wanted diversity. So they were legitimately trying to create this opportunity. And so, but a lot of the minority and women candidates did not have NBA beat experience because we have traditionally been excluded from that beat. So how do you compete with a guy who's on his third NBA beat, mm-hmm. but he's white and always has had that opportunity, right? Um, and, and then there's always this debate about what is it that you're after, yes. right? Do, are you after experience or are you after a different perspective? I will tell you that Eric came in, they gave him a shot, and he was... <laughs> he was fantastic. He, was, he blew yeah. the doors off the place. He's yeah. just got hired by ESPN yeah. um, to be part of their NBA team. He's, he's been amazing for our paper and for that beat. So, sorry, that's long-winded, but how do you make the pool bigger, really bigger, and then how do you make sure that they can compete? Because I think some of us exclude ourselves because we don't have the qualifications. Thoughts? So, Professor started. what would you think? Um, so, I would start by saying that um, persistent lack of diversity is a com- is a incredibly complex issue. There are factors both on the supply side from the perspective of the firms, Mm -hmm. but also on the demand side from the perspective of candidates. And you were talking about that, Amy, the fact that candidates have different preferences too. As a minority candidate, do I want to be you know, the only token person in a company? Do I want to be the only female in uh, an economics department at BYU when I started, right? There there are considerations on both sides of this. of this issue. Yeah. Um, and so I can speak to how we were able to successfully create a larger pool in the context of our study, which is we took 
um, the approach of the candidate side. We said, you know, which recruitment message would appeal to a broader set, uh, to a more diverse set of potential applicants for this very traditionally male-dominated firm in the financial industry. This is one of the largest firms in the U.S. providing financial services. Um, and they're, you know, traditionally in this industry, the share of underrepresented minorities, for example, is far below 10%. The share of women in management is about 30%. So it's a very heavily male-dominated industry. So what we did is we said, let's take standard recruitment practices by this firm, which happen to be very typical recruitment practices mm -hmm. for this industry as a whole. Mm -hmm. um, and let's see which recruitment message appeals to a more diverse candidate pool. One recruitment message was the status quo, which basically said, you know, the firm values, um, values you apply for this job. And what we did is we added another recruitment message, which said the firm values you, we value diversity, we seek a more diverse applicant pool, it emboldens our principles, apply for this job. And then we randomized potential applicants into seeing the first or the second message. Uh, what happened is the applicants that saw the second message were three times more likely to express interest, two times more likely to apply for the job. Um, and two times more likely to actually be selected. And notably, we find no difference in applicant quality. So mm. as you were talking about the actual mm. credentials, mm. experience, we find no observable differences. Both pools were equally qualified. The second pool was significantly more diverse. When we come back, Sarah, I want you to uh, kind of address this too, because uh, in practice, you probably have, would have thought <laughs> this is what would happen, but it, you, it's still an uphill slog to get executives uh, and to have the vision to want to go to or what Professor uh, uh, started to describe as the second uh, applicant op uh, option where they told him that uh, diversity and inclusion were important to their firm. So mm -hmm. I would like to have you speak on that a little bit. When we, when we come back, you're listening to Voices of Reason. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear-gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind, only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Welcome back to Voices of Reason. I am Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson. And today we're talking about the impact of diversity and inclusion in the workplace. And we're speaking with Sarah Jones. She is the founder and CEO of Inclusion Pro here in Utah, which helps executives build inclusion and diversity at their companies. And uh, Olga Stoddard, she's an assistant professor of economics at Brigham Young University and a senior research associate with the Science of Diversity Initiative, a collaboration of researchers and practitioners in the field of uh, workplace diversity. Sarah, uh, I wanted to uh, kind of have you 
not respond, but at least kind of add on to uh, what Professor Stoddard mentioned earlier about when candidates know that uh, in diversity and inclusion are a part of what you believe are the fabric and vision of your company, they are more likely to apply to open positions, which then gives you a larger candidate pool and potentially greater opportunity for profitability uh, long term. Can you speak to that in, in terms of practice? And I realize this has probably been going on for a while, but it's still uh, something that you have to consciously tell executives to, to consider in their uh, applicant pool? Yeah, what I love about uh, Professor Stoddard's research is um, the last thing she said was that the applicants, there was no distinguishable difference in their qualifications. And I love that there was an academic perspective because in reality, what can happen is if we're not watchful is the assumption that, uh, oh, you know, I have now increased my pool, but... You know, the hiring, but then the recruiting process from then on out tends to, uh, you know, diminish potential, right? I mean, we were talking about. You're trying to compare. Like you're trying to compare. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so depending if uh, if the entire recruiting process isn't really watching for that potentially happening. So I have a female candidate. I'm interviewing her. I have a male candidate. I'm now interviewing him. The questions can change. Right. And now all of a sudden I'm thinking I'm going to hire the guy on potential. But right. So um, so I, I love that there are these practical examples of the way that we write job descriptions, marketing. Mm-hmm. It does make a difference. And yeah. I've, I've you know worked with clients where, um, you know, in tech, what we're seeing is there's this term called customer experience. We're being very aware of like the customer experience. And it doesn't even have to be a buying customer. It could be somebody who's potentially interacting with our company in some way. They're becoming very much more aware of that. And I think what we're also seeing more is this trend of seeing our potential recruiting candidates as customers. So for an example of this is Adobe, their senior executive, uh, there's a senior executive, Donna Morris, and she's actually over both customer experience and employee experience. Mm-hmm. Because they're so very similar, kind of intertwined. Right? Our potential yeah. employees are people who hopefully love our our products, right? I mean, so so there's this kind of relationship with, with it, and we're starting to understand that the employee experience is not just what I read; it's not just the marketing, but it's it's everything. It's all of my interactions with a company, including the entire recruiting process. Now, when uh, you know when we we're when Professor Stoddard was talking about her research, my mind went to retention. See, been, that's what it always goes to me. I've been the yeah. woman. I've been the woman in, in yeah. an industry that is only five percent women. I've been that person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I've been in those cultures. So then my mind goes to culture. Yeah, mm-hmm. what are those companies doing? Not just to put a shine on their. Recruiting efforts. Just say, look how hard we're trying. Yeah. Right, because it will attract people. I mean, it is true that that diverse candidates. Again, if you know who your customer is, mm-hmm. there is a way to better attract them for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but we want to keep them. Yeah, and we and, want them to thrive. And I think there's a couple critical questions that companies have to address before they before they even write that. Um, you know, throw the bait out or or, or write that um, prospectus for a job. And that is, why do we care that this is part of our fabric? Why does having a diverse workplace matter? Because I can, under, I can tell you why it matters to me, but I have seen time and time again where hiring has not followed that line. Like, we'll have conversations, and, they, and it's important to everybody, but when push comes to shove, the hiring practices are pretty standard, right? And I and I think sometimes is it the search committee 
hiring people that look and think like them? Uh, is it the requirements of the job being very traditional? I mean, I we one you know question is why can't we keep women in sports writing? Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Neither uh, there was a period of time I think the Tribune just hired a female sports writer, but for after I left. There were no female mm-hmm. full-time sports writers or broadcasters in the state. And now they have some, like Ute Zone has really worked hard the on jazz that. jazz has. KSL.com. Yeah, mm-hmm. and yeah. Uh, jazz have. Uh, ha- there's, so they're women in the industry, mm-hmm. right? But like in traditional media roles, why do we? why can't we hire them and why can't we keep them? And it's not that they don't want to work there. There are tons of the women run the journalism department up at the University of Utah, right? And so I think there's that critical question and I wonder from both of your experiences have you talked to companies about why this matters to them because I don't want it to matter I mean my hope is that it doesn't matter just because they want to sell me stuff <laughs> yeah that it matters because they know, they understand that when you bring diversity into a workplace it makes you a better stronger more interesting company and I just wondered do they say that? Do you, do you have those discussions with them? I, certainly we do. And unfortunately, from my experience, most companies uh, want to show that diversity is good for the bottom line because ultimately they are yeah. in business to make profits. Yeah. And, you know, I would certainly argue there is or and that's something we try to argue to them and, and convince us that there is both the moral case for diversity as well as the business case yeah, for yeah. diversity. And you can't. Um, you can't solely focus on one. Yeah. Um, if you do, you're not creating that inclusive culture. Um, but I I have found that at least you know when firms come to academics uh, for sort of these evaluations and and studies, um, they're wanting us to show that there is indeed this business case for diversity, right? That mm. that it helps them uh, tap into uh, a market, a new market, right, of diverse um, clientele. Of potential, yeah. Yeah. exactly, yeah. diverse yeah. clientele, right? The Google's next mm-hmm. billion user initiative is all about that, right? They're recognizing that there is this untapped market that is only going to grow in the next few years. Um, you know, or they're trying to show that there is some benefits of diversity with regards to innovation and creativity. And there's a few studies that have consistently shown that. Um, I, you know, I would certainly argue that there are people within companies that are, are fully on board with the moral case and are, are passionate and find that their their goal to increase diversity for those reasons. But, uh, you know, that's unfortunately still ways away before companies are on board with that. When we come back, I want to start with Sarah, and I want to ask about something we talked about a little bit earlier uh, offline, and that is the kind of convincing executives that um, the pushback they may receive from their their executive cabinet or whatever, the, the other leaders, doesn't necessarily reflect what should be happening in their company. It may uh, it, it may be more fear based than reality based in terms of uh, creating diversity in the workplace to the detriment of somebody else. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk about that and more. You're listening to Voices of Reason. Welcome back to Voices of Reason. I am Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson. Today we're talking diversity and inclusion in the workplace. 
with uh, Sarah Jones. She is the CEO and uh, founder of Inclusion Pro, which helps executives build inclusion and diversity at their companies. And Olga Stoddard, she is an assistant professor of economics at Brigham Young University and a senior research associate with the Science and Diversity Initiative, a collaboration of researchers and practitioners in the field of diversity. Amy, take it away. Yeah, I just, so does it, do these ads that, that sort of um, are meant to be more appealing to a diverse workforce, do they deter white men or the traditional applicant, I guess? Yeah, that might be one concern, uh-huh. right, from yeah. the standpoint of companies. And what we find is actually the opposite, that uh, if anything, white men are slightly more likely to apply when they see the diversity-related messages. Um, but definitely they're not deterred at all relative to the standard status quo recruitment messages. So, and, Sarah, well, and Sarah. that's fantastic to hear. I mean, you know, that, you know, from an inclusion standpoint, you want anyone to apply, right? The, I, the goal is not to exclude white men. The goal is to be inclusive of as much great talent as you possibly can be. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's been an important message. That I, c- I continue to beat that drum that, you know, we, w- the goal is not to exclude white men. I- inclusion means everyone is included. And we found also that there's been some studies as well. I haven't personally done these ones, but when you change the language to a more gender neutral or even, uh, you know, more um, uh, feminine language, that it actually does not deter men from applying, right? And so that's the good news, I think, in all of this research. I, I think some of the challenge that I deal with when I'm working with executive teams is the understanding of why are we shifting the messaging seems to be a challenge. Um, if the executive team does not understand how to message things properly, what can happen is that, uh, again, we're talking about people's livelihoods. They see things changing within the organization. Uh, someone will share a job post and, and say, gee, why are, why are you guys saying that, that Utah is the seventh largest LGBTQ plus population in the nation? Like, do we not, like... You let, let's be realistic about who we are as an organization, right? So so there's this pushback that can happen. And that's just one example of some of the, the fear that can take hold of like, wait, things are changing. I'm well, now uncomfortable. And I think also there's always been us tokens, right? So there's always yeah. been one of us. So that if there's one, then ha- I know that um, like I was the only woman in sports for a while. Yeah. And Linda was the only woman before Absolutely, me. Yep. But so when, when I would mentor or help or encourage other women people would say to me like aren't you worried about you're gonna lose you know your job or they're gonna take your job and i was like yeah but i was like i said but why wouldn't they take your job right (laughs) yes because i mean if i always say if there's only room for one of each kind of people a person at the table then we need a bigger table because i think they're especially in media it's absolutely vital. The stories I see, the voices I search for, and Jason would say the same thing, are very different than my male counterparts who grew up in a different and had a different sporting experience mm-hmm. uh, in their youth. And so, and, but they're all important, right? Um, they're not. It's not like one is more important than the other. It's just that now we're saying we're not just going to only be about one perspective or one experience we we want to hear what those other experiences are and i think most companies i can't think of a company that it would be important to just have one gender <laughs> or one race or one cultural experience i think that you benefit from all of these so those of us who have experienced it it's like a no-brainer and i think i think that's the the, the big why we were just talking about mm-hmm. that's the big challenge 
if you haven't had that experience, it's like it's sort of like we're trying to tell them the get, the grass is greener. Trust me, the grass is greener. Yeah. But if you haven't had that experience, you don't know. And so but sometimes I to, feel I feel like a bad guy trying to lure these guys into my, you know, terrible, you know, kidnapping van. <laughs> you know, I promise you'll like diversity. <laughs> well, Trust me. I have candy. No. But Just, again, it's a, it, you know, there's there's this brain research I've been thinking about lately that uh, that there's two different parts of your brain that process familiarity and differences. Oh. And so if you are processing familiarity in one part of your brain and processing difference in a dif- separate and you're, you're not that experienced with it, yeah. then your brain is really actually experiencing this cognitive dissonance. And I really think that's where this irrational fear comes from. Yeah. Right. And, and so, you know, OK, so we can talk about brain research data all we want. Right. But yeah. there's this practical reality of if you and, and this is where we're really trying to get leadership to understand when you can get to a place where you are challenged, where people give you a different perspective that mm-hmm. you're like, wow, that was just mind blowing. I didn't think about that. And you're like, and you can get to this place and get outside of your, and it is discomfort, right? I mean, and let's is, be clear. It is life energy. Jason and I have had this so experience. The moment, the moment you said that, I thought every that experience of something new, something that is enriching, yeah. you are losing that every time you just go into the same places, meeting the same kinds of people, doing the same kinds of things. Mm-hmm. That's why diversity is is so great and, yeah. and so much better than just being homogenous. Yeah. And even when you make a mistake, even when I have, uh, you know, like even when I've ma- written a story where I've used a term that somebody said, hey, that we find that to be, you know, limiting or offensive or it's outdated or whatever. Then we have these great conversations, and I feel like I, I mean, it's like a little bit of a superpower to be able to hear that and take it into my life because people are like, oh, how did you know that? Right. Yes. And I yes. know that because I make mistakes and I listen to the people and I try to, I try to be outside of my bubble, but it's, it is, I mean, I, there are times, there's times where I felt ashamed about it, but I think, yeah. what can I do? I didn't know. But let me right? put a word on that resilience. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've you've learned resilience and that is um, so i'll just bring up the inclusion experience project that we're doing oct- october 24th mm-hmm. it's building resilience in leadership if you can't get to a place where you can build that self-awareness that humility of learning and realizing yeah you know i'm going into this new space where now i'm going to be working with a lot of diverse people mm-hmm. and i don't know everything i don't know pronouns i don't know <laughs> yeah. you know what I it's don't have like to learn new pronouns to, either yeah. to be a black person and be the only person in the room i don't know what that's like but i'm willing to learn and i'm willing to sometimes make mistakes right yeah. it's the fear of perfection that's really holding us back like oh my gosh i can't see anybody seeing me say the wrong thing um, and certainly, but I think know, for someone in power, that is a abs- it, maybe even more intimidating. Say you've been in Absolutely. management all of your career, you've been there for thirty years, yeah. and the idea that somebody underling, some little peon, is going to correct an intern or yes. somebody you've worked really hard to get into this, you know, field, is going to say to you, "Hey, you know, the language you're using, it, it's it's offensive." Or, yeah. you know, let me hear, let me tell you what I hear when you say X, right? Because that's yeah. what we've done. And Jason and I have done it for each other. Yes. Yeah. But it's, there's not everyone, some people we just don't say anything because <laughs> we know they don't want to hear. Yeah. But and I also, hear it, but and I would important. say to you, any executives listening to this, that Michelle Obama made another fantastic point is that it's not enough just to 
lure them to your company and get them to apply and then to hire them. If you don't, it, like she said, if you're Neanderthals, you're not going to keep them. Yep. And the point really is to ha- bring their experience and expertise to bear on what you are doing as a company. That's the value, right? It's the value to them and it's the value to you. And you can't have that if they come in and they feel isolated, they feel uh, like you're ignoring them, they feel less than. All of those things I have felt, I think Jason has felt them, you guys have probably had that experience. And when you're the token, it's you don't, it's very isolating. And there are definitely times where I thought, Okay, it doesn't matter if you're part of the club or you're in the fraternity or whatever. You just have to do, and you're in the male-dominated thing, so you get this. Mm-hmm. But um, but I do think there's value. I think that's why some women don't, they don't want to live their 20-year career mm-hmm. by themselves. <laughs> I would yeah, add. They won't do it. Yeah. Yeah. There yeah. are several um, ongoing studies that I have that are looking at these exact questions, and one in particular that I would point out is uh, where we look at MBA groups, which um, mm-hmm. among MBA students, traditionally only about 25% are female. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're working groups. I must know all of them. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So they, they're random or they're assigned in groups of five, and normally there's just one woman per group, yeah. um, typically because they're so underrepresented, right? Um, so what we show basically is that when there's only one woman in a group relative to when women are in the majority, they are so much less influential. They're able to. They're participating less, um, and they're feeling less authoritative in these uh, in these environments, group discussions, and and their educational experience in general. When we come back, I want to uh, close out by getting some uh, some perspective from you, uh, both uh, Professor Stoddard and uh, from Sarah Jones here, that um, how we can continue to work toward creating that enriching environment that allows people like me, Amy, or any of us who might be. The token. How can we career. not be tokens? How can we not be tokens? Because I've, I've been one for 17 years. Uh, just in this shop alone, let alone of the ones I was in before. So uh, just how can you do it and realize that the pie is bigger, Sarah, than, yes. uh, than, than it's, it's not it's so not finite pie. that we can't share, right? Actually, right, it's not even pie. It's really. not right. It's Opportunity, not pie. we've been equating it the wrong way. Okay. Yeah. When we come back, we'll talk about that. This is Voices of Reason. Welcome back to Voices of Reason. I'm Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson. Today we're discussing inclusion, um, diversity and inclusion in the workplace with Sarah Jones, founder and CEO of Inclusion Pro that helps executives build inclusion and diversity into their uh, companies, and Olga Stoddard, who is an assistant professor of economics at BYU and a senior research associate at the Science and Diversity Initiative, a collaboration of researchers and practitioners in the field of diversity. And... Uh, uh, Sarah, you mentioned that, um, well, actually, Amy was trying to correct me to tell that we're not in a, a pie situation. <laughs> there is, this This is an infinite uh, uh, amount of slices available for all of us. Yeah, there's not a finite amount of opportunity. Yeah, and I, you know, I think a lot of the, uh, the, thinking of around opportunity has definitely come from our, you know, entrepreneurial capitalist roots, right? We're scrappy. Uh, you know, we've, we, a lot of us have to, have had to pull us you know, up by the, our bootstraps. And so I think a lot of that has influenced the way we think about opportunity because it is true that, you know, um, so many economies have had to work really hard to get where they're at. And so we we certainly are not discounting that. But, you know, we're in this situation where there is a lot of affluence. And so we can actually change the way we think about opportunity and redefine it. There's really not a limit necessarily. I mean, organizationally, for sure. I mean, you've got some constraints 
there just in terms of how organizations run. But, you know, if we continue to persist to think that, you know, opportunity is only available to a few, then we're really, you know, doing a disservice to ourselves. I do want to reassure any, you know, executives and leaders that are listening to this that there are absolutely safe learning spaces. And I think that's been a little bit of a struggle, right? If if they're, um, you know, hearing diversity, inclusion, diversity, inclusion, and, you know, their, their, you know, head of people is trying to really promote this within the organization, um, they might feel a little bit stuck of like, gosh, I've gone through my entire career learning lots of things about entrepreneurism, but one thing I haven't learned is actually how to get the best out of a diverse team. I haven't learned that. And it's okay to acknowledge that. And there are safe places where you can learn this and where, um, you know, if you fumble, I mean, we've all fumbled as we've learned new things, right? That is just the process of learning. It's okay. And so, um, you know, just that reassurance that, you know, what we're not saying is, gosh, you know, you know, executives figure it out. Come on already. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is that, you know, you've got people within your organizations. I see this all the time. They're coming to me, help me out, da, 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 da. Um, there are people in your organization that are so passionate about building this opportunities because they know that all tides rise, right? When you can lift people up, uh, get past that token level, all tides will rise. And thankfully, we are, you know, the Rooney Rule is sort of gone by the wayside, thankfully. You know, we're getting past that and really understanding you need a critical mass to really make movement. But the Rooney Rule is, uh, you have to. Um, the, the Rooney Rule is came from the NFL, the NFL where they were right. trying it to get more the, black the coaches, right? The Pittsburgh Steelers. Right? Co- uh, yeah, and this room. rule. You know, interview at least one. At least one. And so then what people did is, fine, we'll interview one. <laughs> and they never hired them. And they That's never right. hired Statistically did not bear out, right? And so we, we're past that, and thankfully, we're not, we're not that, that uh, trend has sort of stopped. Mm-hmm. Um, but what, what we want to get is to a place where leaders understand that diversity does not change culture. Right. We used to think get a get a, a critical mass of diversity, the culture will change. Not true. It ha- absolutely requires leadership to drive inclusion throughout the organization. Right. They're the ones that have to give life to diverse thinking. It's their job. And a culture will not change unless from the CEO and honestly, from the board level on down. Right. The, that they're all understanding my role in leadership. But there, but it takes some education. It takes some awareness of, I don't have that skill. I need to obtain that skill, and I'm willing to learn it. So, Professor Stoddard, I mean, uh, kind of to, uh, to Sarah's point, you know, you have to have leadership by create, have the vision to buy into and then create the environment that they want to have in their workplaces. How do you convey that, to, uh, or at least in, in your research, how have you been able to uh, – have you been able to discern whether or not companies have decided to buy into this and uh, have there been changes made so that they can create that environment? Um, so, yeah, I don't know if I can speak much to, you know, sort of across the board, but the companies that we've worked with, you know, as I mentioned, um, often the, the incentive for them is in the bottom line, right? They're trying to stay global, you know, or they're trying to stay current in a global context. The global context means they are, serving a more diverse, increasingly diverse pool of candidates, mm-hmm. uh, excuse me, pool of customers, customers right. um, you know, and any company that wants to stay relevant in that kind of context really needs to pay attention to both the diversity and inclusion of uh, of its employee base um, to avoid problems like, you know, notable cases like Google where, you know, you develop a software and 
um, and you know, black people are are tagged as uh, you know as, as gorillas, mm-hmm. or to avoid cases where you know motion sensors are only sen- you know responding to certain skin color, right? You can't create these kinds of products when your employee base and uh, when your data are being trained on whites only. Right. Um, or I should say, you will create these kinds of products yeah, when you you exactly. lack diversity in your in your um, in the iPhone among your employees. The iPhone uh, facial recognition on Asians. Yeah. Right. Oh. You could you could unlock your iPhone with different Asian faces because it hadn't been properly trained That's with right. the artificial intelligence right. to do that. And <laughs> Jason, so, <laughs> you're, you're sending Jason to the. I wore the first set of Google Glass. The very first set of Google Glass that came out. Gosh, I want to say ten years ago. Yeah, maybe? it was a long time. Yeah. Long time ago, but I put it on my head and I was like. They never even tested this design no, on Asian not. heads. I have a my my head shape is very different, right? And I have a small head. So no, I have a small and head. I think I think this all the time about things yeah. for women. They yeah. just found out that the seatbelt and the and the um, the airbag system, yeah, it kills or injures more women. They've studied this because it's designed for a 5'10", 170-pound yep. man, right? Yes. So this is the problem. I mean, they're all. I mean, you could do this all day long, but but also. It's just if you have to spend so much time at work, I can tell you that when we we've kind of created our own little crew of diverse ideas and diverse experiences, it's it's fun to go to work. Right. It's interesting. What are you doing in your life? What are you what's happening with you? Right. And and how do you see news? Like when when something happens, we have different takes on it because we have different experiences. And I enjoy seeing things differently and learning things differently because I can only know what I know. Right. And I think that, um, I've said this often, some of the wage gap exists because the people who are running companies don't understand what we want, what we women want from a company. Right. And they would want the same thing if they knew, if we could communicate. But like you said, there's always one of us and they say, Oh, thanks for the input. There's (laughs) eight guys telling us something different. Maybe thanks for the input. Maybe well, they, maybe they never ask. Like, maybe right. I went uh, anyway. Well, they I, never ask. You just they never say ask, it. right? They always <laughs> assume they know the answer, right? And um, who knows better than them? Yeah, and you know, I what I really like about uh, Professor Stoddard's research is it's a really good reminder that, and I and I try to convey this that women and diverse individuals are actually very strategic. Mm-hmm. They are constantly in the business of doing risk analysis. Mm-hmm. Which is why, if you're not getting diverse candidates, it's not because there's not a talent pool out there. They are doing risk analysis. They are self-selecting themselves out of your company yeah. way before they're ever going to apply. They're not going to waste energy on your company because they've had enough experiences during their lifetime mm-hmm. that they know, right? It's a very strategic understanding right. of where am I going to thrive and where am I not going to thrive? Absolutely. I can tell you I chose assignments yes. for that reason. Yeah. And uh, everyone says, you're not following this traditional path. Yeah. Because I don't want that. Right. I want something different. I want flexibility. I want to be a mom. I want to have, and I want to work on, on the projects I want to work on. And I got too much pushback if I did the traditional path. Yeah. I was their person, right? And I wasn't their person because I wasn't the traditional if sports writer. anybody knows anything about Amy, she is not somebody else's person. <laughs> <laughs> so think about, so think about, the skills that you know this this would be my argument for hiring more diverse candidates at least at least now in the future it's not going to be the same but think about the strategic skills that are developed by someone who experiences resistance a lot mm-hmm. right 
lots of resilience, uh, lots of strategic thinking, lots of risk analysis, creativity. How am I going to get around this? Mm-hmm. Right. So think about the value that adds to your company. The other thing that's going to happen is they get into your company. They see your boards all white men. They see your executive teams all white men. A strategic person will not stay at your company. Mm-hmm. So, so thinking from that perspective of putting your shoes in that role and thinking, why wouldn't I want to hire somebody like that that really gets it? But it does require some shifts. It does require me saying, long term, I'm going to need diversity on my executive team. It is Women won't stay. It is true, right? Mm-hmm. I, if I can't see myself succeeding at your company, mm-hmm. I'm not going to mm-hmm. stay. I might be there for a good three years, maybe five. But I'm not going to stay there my whole I'm going to go somewhere where I can see myself being successful long term. So just Honestly, thinking about I think the it's long why you game. see this explosion in entrepreneurship among mi- women and minorities. Yes. I hate to do this, but we, we're, we've run out of time. <laughs> uh, Professor Olga Stoddard and Sarah Jones, thank you so much for a, a fabulous discussion as always. Thank you so much. Thank, and, thank uh, you. Join us again for the next episode of the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. If you have any comments about our show, please contact us via email at vormed at gmail.com or at vrjasonl at gmail. You can also find us on Twitter at adonsports and at jasonlee1. Our show's Twitter handle is at podcast. Check out our Facebook page. You can also find and subscribe to free episodes of our podcast any places where you find interesting content. And if we want you to review our show as well, uh, we'd love to get your feedback and it helps us grow our audience. Until next time, I'm Jason Lee. When you engage in passionate debate, do your best to keep your dialogue civil. Try to be the voice of reason. Voices of Reason is a production of the Loudmouth Project. A stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow the letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.